Welcome, my fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags and other key symbols of America. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, co-creator of Patriot Week, constitutional law professor at Western Michigan University Cooley Law School, and I was just named Judge of the Decade by the International Association of Top Professionals. Pretty cool if I have to say so myself. This episode of Patriot Lessons is a special edition on impeachment. Why? Well, the House of Representatives has just impeached President Donald Trump. He is only the third president in our republic's history to be impeached. As is often the case with the Constitution and American history and civics, much of the general public only has a hazy understanding of impeachment. So we are here to lend an informed hand. We always like to begin at the beginning, and in this case, the Constitution. Article 1, Section 2 of the United States Constitution provides... Quote, the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment, unquote. So what does that mean? That means that in our constitutional system, the House of Representatives, which is directly elected by the people every two years, is often dubbed the People's House, is the only authority that can impeach a federal official. The Senate cannot do it. The President cannot do it. The Supreme Court has no power here. It is only the House of Representatives. Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution provides, quote, The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present, unquote. So what does that mean? That means it is really a two-step process. Impeachment, brought by the House, is a finding that a federal official has done something wrong and should be removed from office. But the House cannot remove the federal official. That rests solely with the Senate. The Senate represents the states, with elections every six years. The House is close to the people, and most closely aligns with their passions and desires at any given moment. The Senate is intended to be more deliberative, more cautious, and a check on the passions of the House and only the Senate can remove a federal official who has been impeached, and only after trial, and only after two-thirds of the senators agree. Needless to say, this is a very high bar. This process is analogous to criminal cases. Usually a grand jury or a lower court judge determines that there is enough evidence to charge somebody with a crime. Then it goes on to an appropriate trial court to determine, usually through a jury trial, if someone is guilty. In my court, there are district court judges who first look at a case to determine if there is probable cause to find that a crime has been committed and the defendant may have done the crime. If so, they may bind it over to my court for jury trial. Our jurors must be unanimous in their verdict and they must take an oath to perform their duty justly. In an impeachment, only two-thirds of the senators need to agree, but it is not a criminal proceeding although it is pretty much the death penalty for an officeholder's career. And like juries, senators must be under oath or an affirmation. Rule 25 of the Senate provides 
that in an impeachment trial, senators will specifically take this oath, quote, I solemnly swear or affirm that in all things appertaining to the trial of, and then there's a blank, so you put in the person's name, now pending, I will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws. So help me God. Also notice this provision provides that the Chief Justice of the United States presides over the trial. The scope of the Chief Justice's authority is an interesting question. For instance, I presided over more than 350 jury trials, and I have enormous authority about how any particular case is tried. For example, I oversee the selection of the jury, ensure the lawyers are professional, make rulings on the evidence and jury instructions, I control the time and days that we meet, and I'm otherwise in charge of the proceedings. Now, on the other hand, I'm bound by rules of procedure and evidence, and the substance of the law almost always comes from the legislature or rulings of higher courts. In an impeachment, the Chief Justice would normally just ensure that the rules the Senate lay out are followed. But if the Senate cannot agree on the rules, for example, whether or not any witnesses will be called, or how many, or whether there will be an opening statement and closing arguments, and how long they would be, then the Chief Justice may have very strong influence on the impeachment. Historically, the Senate has adopted rules for impeachment trials, and I would imagine that will occur in connection with the trial President Trump. That is, if there is a trial. As of the date of the writing of this article on December 20th of 2019, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is refusing to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate. Technically, she needs to name managers to prosecute the House's case in the Senate. The managers will be members of the House who will go to the Senate to prosecute the case. Speaker Pelosi is refusing to name the managers and will send the articles of impeachment to the Senate only if the Senate agrees to trial procedures that she believes will result in a fair trial. Now, of course, it is Civics 101 that we have a bicameral Congress. In other words, we have a House of Representatives and a Senate, and they each runs their own agenda and affairs in the manner they see fit. This is an extraordinary move on Pelosi's part to attempt to force the Senate to set a trial's procedures. This would be akin to the Senate trying to tell the House the procedure they should take on to elect their Speaker of the House or how to pass legislation. If the Senate and the House don't agree, it will be interesting to see what happens. It is possible that the House will have a stillborn impeachment, that is, if they don't agree and don't send the articles over to the Senate, that there would be no trial. That would be much ado about nothing. On the other hand, one could argue the Senate could take notice of the impeachment and just proceed with the trial anyway. Either circumstance would be untested waters. That brings us to the final provision of the Constitution, Article 2, Section 4, which provides, quote, The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, unquote. There has been considerable controversy over the proper grounds for impeachment. Again, I'd like to begin at the beginning. So let's go back to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. There, the framers discussed the importance of having impeachment and its purpose. Now, James Madison, who later became Secretary of State and then President, was a leading figure of the convention. Many call him the father of the Constitution. Although many of the convention influenced the Constitution in many significant ways, he clearly took the leading role and the accolade is quite appropriate. He also took excellent notes and quoted and or paraphrased many of the comments at the convention. One of the best remarks and explanations from the convention about impeachment was from George Mason. 
Mason is best known for opposing the adoption of the Constitution because it lacked a Bill of Rights, and his opposition eventually led to the promise and fulfillment by Madison himself of adding the Bill of Rights to the Constitution after its ratification. At the convention, Mason was quoted by Madison as follows, quote, No point is of more importance than the right of impeachment should be continued. Shall any man be above justice? Above all shall that man be above it, who can commit the most extensive injustice? When great crimes were committed, he was for punishing the principal as well as the co-adjudicators. There had been much debate and difficulty as to the mode of choosing the executive. He approved of what had been adopted at first, namely referring the appointment of the national legislature. One objection against electors was the danger of their being corrupted by the candidates, and this furnished a peculiar reason in favor of impeachments while in office. Shall the man who has practiced corruption and by that means procured his appointment in the first instance be suffered to escape punishment by repeating his guilt? Unquote. Now, there's a much to unpack here, but the main point is that no one, not even the president, actually, most especially the president, should be above the law. We are a nation of laws, not men, and the Constitution needed a way to remove someone from his office if he or she abused the office. Madison himself continued on this theme, and this is Madison quoting himself at the convention. He, quote, thought it indispensable that some provision should be made for defending the community against the incapacity, negligence, or perfidy of the chief magistrate. Parenthetical, perfidy is a deliberate breach of faith. Unparenthetical, the limitation of the purity of his service was not a sufficient security. He might lose his capacity after his appointment. He might pervert his administration into a scheme of peculation or oppression. He might betray his trust to foreign powers. In the case of the executive magistracy, which was to be administered by a single man, loss of capacity or corruption was more within the compass of probable events than either of them might be fatal to the Republic. Unquote. Interestingly, Madison noted that there was no way to remove an incapacitated or disabled president from office. In fact, we didn't fix that until after the assassination of John F. Kennedy through a constitutional amendment. A more salient concern is that it was necessary to stop a corrupt, oppressive, or evil president. Note he also highlights the potential to betray his trust to foreign powers. Madison said that in 1787, and here we are in 2019, and President Trump was impeached because the House found his discussions with the president of Ukraine was an attempt to subvert an upcoming election. In other words, foreign influence. Don't underestimate the genius of Madison. And don't underestimate his partner and sometimes enemy, Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was not particularly influential at the Constitutional Convention. He was branded as a monarchist. But he did collaborate with Madison and John Jay to publish the Federalist Papers to help advocate for the adoption of the Constitution. And the Federalist Papers are a seminal piece of work on political understanding as well as the Constitution. And in Federalist number 65, he had a tremendous warning for us all. Quote, A well-constituted court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained in a government wholly elective. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a political nature, which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, and the word political is all caps, 
as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties, more or less friendly or inimical, to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt, unquote. Well, here we are in 2019, and President Trump's impeachment was almost entirely a partisan affair. All Republicans opposed it, and all but three Democrats approved it. And this is not unique. The first impeachment in our history was of President Andrew Johnson. That effort was undertaken by radical Republicans and passed the House 126 to 47. The Republican-dominated Senate fell only one vote short of convicting Johnson. The second impeachment was against Democrat President Bill Clinton. And that time again, Republicans led the effort. That vote was 258 to 176. Now, 31 Democrats did join the Republicans to commence impeachment proceedings against Clinton on October 8th of 1998. In the Senate, it ended up being even more partisan. No Democrats voted to convict, but a few Republicans voted to acquit. The impeachment inquiry against President Nixon never proceeded to a full House vote, but the Judiciary Committee voted to approve articles of impeachment for the full House to consider. Now, that vote was the most bipartisan that we've had, having garnered six Republicans in favor of a 27 to 11 vote. So again, don't underestimate the genius of Alexander Hamilton. With that cautionary note from Hamilton borne out by history, the next question is, what is the basis for impeachment? The text refers to treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason is a legal term of art and actually defined in the Constitution. As, quote, treason against the United States shall consist only in loving war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court, unquote. Bribery is not defined, but most people understand what it means. However, there has been some dispute about this recently. You may remember that the Democrats were considering charging President Trump with bribery, although there were never any allegations of money or valuable assets changing hands. His accusers did slosh around a bit on how they were going to characterize his behavior and proceed, but the idea of bribery was generally dropped. Instead, they went through with the general idea of high crimes and misdemeanors. So what does that mean? Here I'm going to start us with United States Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story. He is not quite a founding father, uh, but he took office while many were still alive or even in office, and he was well acquainted with what they thought. He was an eminent constitutional scholar, likely the most esteemed legal mind of his time next to John Marshall. In his treatise, he wrote, quote, What are impeachable offenses? They are treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. For the definition of treason, resort may be to the Constitution itself. But for the definition of bribery, resort is naturally and necessarily to the common law. Now, neither the Constitution nor any statute of the United States has in any manner defined any crimes, except treason and bribery, to be high crimes and misdemeanors, and as such impeachable. It will not be sufficient to say that in these cases, when any offense is punished by any statute of the United States, it may and ought to be deemed an impeachable offense. It is not every offense that by the Constitution is so impeachable, 
it must not only be an offense, but a high crime and misdemeanor, unquote. So here, Story is making the distinction that a simple violation of any particular federal law would not necessarily rise to the level of impeachment. It has to be a high crime and misdemeanor. His treatise continues, quote, And there are many offenses, purely political, which have been held to be within the reach of parliamentary impeachments, not of one which is in the slightest manner alluded to in our statute book. And indeed, political offenses are of so various and complex a character, so utterly incapable of being defined or classified, that the task of positive legislation would be impracticable if it were not almost absurd to attempt it. Unquote. Now, this understanding has maintained its validity throughout the ages. During the Nixon investigation, a very well researched and influential inquiry staff report was released, and it summarized the issue as follows Quote, Two points emerge from the 400 years of English parliamentary experience with the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors. First, the particular allegations of misconduct alleged damage to the state in such forms as misapplication of funds, abuse of official power, neglect of duty, encroachment on parliament's prerogatives and corruption, and betrayal of trust. Second, the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors was confined to parliamentary impeachments. It had no roots in the ordinary criminal law, and the particular allegations of misconduct under that heading were not necessarily limited to common law or statutory derelictions of crime." Unquote. The report continues, quote, It is useful to note three major presidential duties of broad scope that are explicitly recited in the Constitution. To take care that the laws be faithfully executed. To faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States. And to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States to the best of his ability. The first is directly imposed by the Constitution. The second and third are included in the constitutionally prescribed oath that the President is required to take before he enters upon the execution of his office and are therefore also expressly imposed by the Constitution. The report elaborates a bit more, and I know this is a long quote, but it really, I think, is helpful to understand what the founders are getting at. Quote, not all presidential misconduct is sufficient to constitute grounds for impeachment. There is a further requirement, substantiality. In deciding whether this further requirement has been met, the facts must be considered as a whole in the context of the office, not in terms of separate or isolated events. Because impeachment of a president is a grave step for the nation, it is to be predicated only on conduct seriously incompatible with either the constitutional form or principles of our government or proper performance of constitutional duties of the presidential office, unquote. So again here, you do not necessarily need a crime in federal law to be able to proceed or in state law to proceed with an impeachment. It's too difficult and complex to list out all the different kinds of misbehavior that could constitute an impeachable offense. But even a violation of law itself isn't enough. It has to be material and substantial to the whole idea of the president's duties and powers. So let's say you had a president who just declared one day, I'm not going to enforce any of the tax laws. Well, that would probably be a pretty serious dereliction of duty. How could the government run without enforcement of the tax laws? Or they said, I'm not going to enforce any of the drug laws. Or I'm not going to enforce any of the immigration laws. Or I'm not going to act as commander in chief. That would be neglect of duty, failure to faithfully execute the laws of such a substantial character that impeachment would well likely be justified. On the other hand, 
if a president said, I'm not going to enforce this particular law in this particular circumstance because it's unjust and the rest of the administration moves forward, you know, a particular tax law that was written in such a way that everyone is violating it or there are unintended consequences, that is unlikely to race to the level of substantiality and materiality that would form the basis of an impeachment. But perhaps the best summary is the most frank assessment by then Representative Gerald Ford, who would later become President Ford after Nixon resigned, ironically because of the threat of impeachment. Ford had become Vice President after Nixon's original Vice President resigned in disgrace in connection with tax fraud. Ford started an impeachment inquiry against United States Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. First, Ford thought he was corrupt. He thought he was violating tax laws, and there was an investigation about his questionable relationship to questionable foundations. Second, Douglas's judicial philosophy was unmoored from the original intent, text, and traditions of the Constitution on many different cases, and at one point he wrote a dissenting opinion, for example, claiming that trees should have the right to sue in court, that they had standing. Uh, but I digress. In any event, Ford put it like this. Quote, what then is an impeachable offense? The only honest answer is that an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers to be at any given moment in history. Conviction results from whatever offense or offenses two-thirds of the other body considers to be sufficiently serious to require removal of the accused from office. Again, the historical context and political climate are important. There are few fixed principles among the handful of precedents. Unquote. Now, this is undoubtedly the truth. Pursuant to the Constitution, who can challenge the decisions of the House and the Senate in connection with impeachment? Not the President. The Supreme Court appears to have no role other than the Chief Justice presiding over the trial in the Senate, and they would likely find that any attempt of an impeached President to try to reverse an impeachment as non-judiciable, in other words, a political question beyond its authority, it is extremely unlikely to foresee that a President who's impeached and file a case before the Supreme Court and somehow even have it heard or win. Now that we have set the stage, what does history teach us? The first impeachment involved Andrew Johnson. In 1864, President Lincoln was in a tough election against Union General George McClellan and wanted to secure loyal Democrats to his side. So he chose Democrat Tennessee Senator Andrew Johnson as his vice presidential running mate. Senator Johnson had stayed loyal to the Union despite the fact that Tennessee, his home state, has seceded. Lincoln was brilliant and helped him secure his re-election. However, the strategy backfired when Lincoln was rewarded for his service by being assassinated and Johnson became president about 45 days into his term. Johnson favored a very forgiving approach to Reconstruction. He wanted to bring back the South into the Union quickly and without much fuss. But he was blind to what the country just went through. The Civil War resulted in 600,000 Americans being killed. It tore the country apart, figuratively and literally. And the radical Republican Congress wanted an aggressive Reconstruction policy to protect the freedmen, ensure racial equality, and stop the Southern traders from regaining power. The radical Republicans passed several groundbreaking laws to accomplish just that end. And Johnson responded by vetoing those laws. Congress tried to circumvent him by passing the 14th and 15th Amendments. The 14th Amendment enshrined the equal protection of the laws and due process to all Americans, and the 15th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote 
to all men in the country. Now, Johnson had inherited Lincoln's cabinet, and the Republican Congress wanted them to remain in office. So they passed the Tenure of Office Act, which required the U.S. Senate to approve the firing of any cabinet officials. Johnson vetoed the act, but Congress overrode it. Now, this seems a little bizarre to us because in today's day and age, a cabinet official is nominated, they're approved, and if the president wants to fire them, he has the right to fire them. It's, there's no challenge there. But because of the unique circumstances and the historical context and 600,000 people having been slain in the Civil War, the Radical Republican Congress decided to amp up its attempt to preserve uh, and move forward with Reconstruction. Johnson violates the Tenure in Office Act when he fires the Secretary of State Edwin Stanton, who is a strong supporter of President Lincoln and Reconstruction. Stanton and the Radical Republicans argued that his firing was illegal. Johnson ignored that and appointed his own Secretary of War, Major General Lorenzo Thomas, a longtime foe of Stanton. Stanton responded by having Thomas arrested. This is kind of like the Pope and the anti-Pope saga that plagued the Catholic Church for several years. Uh, the Congress had enough, and the Radical Republicans issued 11 articles of impeachment and passed them overwhelmingly in the House of Representatives. These are related to the Stanton affair. The effort to convict President Johnson in the Senate fell short by one vote. Now, all this happened in the 1860s. And it took over 100 years for the next serious effort to impeach a president. This involved Republican President Richard Nixon, who had just run re-election in a landslide. His troubles began before the election when Republican operatives broke into the national headquarters of the Democratic Party in the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. to uncover information on their plans for the presidential election. We call this the Watergate scandal. This effort ended up proving that the cover-up was worse than the crime. Although no one really could prove that Nixon had anything to do with the break-in, he did everything in his power to prevent an investigation of the scandal. This formed the basis of Article I of impeachment, which in part reads as follows. Quote, Richard M. Nixon, using the powers of high office, engaged personally and through his subordinates and agents in a course of conduct or plan designed to delay, impede, and obstruct the investigation of such lawful entry, to cover up, conceal, and protect those responsible and to conceal the existence and scope of other unlawful covert activities. The means used to implement this course of conduct or plan included one or more of the following, making or causing to be made false or misleading statements to lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States, withholding relevant and material evidence or information from lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States, approving, condoning, acquiescing in, and counseling witnesses with respect to the giving of false or misleading statements to lawfully authorized investigative officers and employees of the United States in false or misleading testimony in duly instituted judicial and congressional proceedings, interfering or endeavoring to interfere with the conduct of investigations by the Department of Justice of the United States, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Office of Watergate, Special Prosecution Force, and Congressional Committees, and it goes on and on. Article 3 of impeachment involved refusing to comply with subpoenas issued by Congress. What most people don't focus on, and which actually involves what some might argue much graver misconduct by Nixon, is what was addressed in Article 2. It states, in part, that Nixon, quote, has repeatedly engaged in conduct violating the constitutional rights of citizens, 
impairing the due and proper administration of justice and the conduct of lawful inquiries or contravening the laws governing agencies of the executive and purposes of these agencies. This conduct has included one or more of the following. He has acted personally and through his subordinates and agents endeavored to obtain from the Internal Revenue Service in violation of the constitutional rights of citizens confidential information contained in income tax returns for purposes not authorized by law and to cause in violation of the constitutional rights of citizens income tax audits or other income tax investigations to be initiated or conducted in a discriminatory manner. Parenthetical. That means he sicked the IRS and his political enemies. Unparenthetical. He used the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Secret Service, and other executive personnel in violation or disregard of the constitutional rights of citizens by directing or authorizing such agencies or personnel to conduct or continue electronic surveillance or other investigations for purposes unrelated to national security, the enforcement of laws, or other lawful function of his office, and he did direct the concealment of certain records made by the Federal Bureau of Investigation of Electronic Surveillance. Parenthetical. That means he sick the FBI on his political opponents and the Secret Service. Unparenthetical. He has acting personally and through his subordinates and agents in violation or disregard of the constitutional rights of citizens authorized and permitted to be maintained a secret investigative unit within the office of the president, financed in part with money derived from campaign contributions, which off which unlawfully utilized the resources of the Central Intelligence Agency, engaged in covert unlawful activities, and attempted to prejudice the constitutional right of an accused to a fair trial. Parenthetical. That means he sick the CIA on people, and not only did he do that, he had them funded through campaign contributions, which violates many laws. Unparenthetical. In disregard of the rule of law, he knowingly misused the executive power by interfering with agencies of the executive branch, including the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Criminal Division, and the Office of Special Watergate Prosecution Force of the Department of Justice and the Central Intelligence Agency, in violation of his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed." Unquote. And there was more. The articles are drafted by a House Judiciary Committee, and as mentioned before, they passed with significant bipartisan support. When this happened, some leading Republicans told Nixon he had lost the support of major portions of the party and he would lose an impeachment vote. Nixon resigned on August 9th of 1974 before any vote of the full House of Representatives could occur. Following Nixon's resignation, the House adopted a resolution to, quote, accept, unquote, the House Judiciary Committee's report recommending impeachment, but there was no vote adopting the articles and thereby impeaching the former president, and consequently, there was no Senate trial. The next impeachment involves President Bill Clinton. Like Nixon, the cover-up was often seen to be much more worse than the wrongful conduct. A couple things here to understand. Clinton, like Nixon, was very popular. He was overseeing a booming economy, and the Cold War had just ended a few years before he took office. Clinton was a notorious woman's man. Some of his escapades were voluntary, and some... Apparently not. The facts are pretty complicated, but what happened was that Clinton was sued by Paula Jones, a former government employee for the state of Arkansas, for sexual harassment and assault, based on an encounter that happened when Clinton was governor of the state. Although Clinton tried to stop the case from continuing while he was in office as president, that effort was stopped by the courts. During the course of a deposition in that lawsuit, he lied under oath about whether he had had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky, 
a White House intern. When compelling evidence came out that Clinton indeed had voluntary sexual relations with Lewinsky, it became clear that Clinton had perjured himself. Clinton tried to explain it away by torturing the English language to explain why he didn't commit perjury, but really no one took the bait. In the interim, Clinton's defense team went on a character assassination campaign against Paula Jones and others involved in the scandal. In the end, the House of Representatives, dominated by Republicans, brought forward four articles of impeachment and two of them passed the House. Article 1 states in part, quote, In his conduct while President of the United States, in violation of his constitutional oath to faithfully execute the office of the President, he has undermined the integrity of his office, betrayed his trust as President, and acted in a manner subversive of the rule of law by willfully corrupting and manipulating the judicial process of the United States for his personal gain and exoneration, willfully committing perjury by providing false and misleading testimony to the grand jury in relation to his relationship with an employee, willfully committing perjury by providing false and misleading testimony to the grand jury in relation to prior perjurious testimony in a civil rights action against him, allowing his attorney to make false and misleading statements in the same civil rights action, attempting to influence witness testimony in slow, though it's discovery of evidence in that civil rights action, unquote. Article 3, in part, states that Clinton, in the Paula Jones case, quote, prevented, obstructed, and impeded the administration of justice by encouraging a witness to give a perjurious affidavit, encouraging a witness to give false testimony if called to the stand, allowing and or encouraging the concealment of subpoenaed evidence, attempting to sway a witness testimony by providing a job for that witness, allowing his attorney to make misleading testimony, giving false or misleading information to influence the testimony of a potential witness in a federal civil rights action, giving false or misleading information to influence the testimony of a witness in a grand jury investigation. Unquote. As noted earlier, the effort failed in the Senate. One article received 50 votes and the other even less, both of which were well short of the necessary two-thirds or 67 votes to impeach. Now skip ahead about 20 years, and we have the Trump impeachment saga. Here the tables are turned. We have a Republican president, unexpectedly elected, and a Democrat-majority House of Representatives. It is no secret that there is deep animosity between the Democrats and Trump, and there is a toxic political environment. There had been several unsuccessful efforts to impeach Trump for various reasons, but all fell short of even beginning the impeachment proceedings, that is, until it came out that the president attempted to convince the president of Ukraine to investigate Hunter Biden, the son of former Vice President Joe Biden, and a potentially very strong general election candidate against Trump in 2020. It was also alleged that Trump was holding back military aid approved by Congress, that is to go to Ukraine, who is battling against Russia, until Ukraine announced it would do an investigation of Hunter Biden. Now, Hunter Biden was being paid $50,000 a month to serve on the board of a Ukrainian energy company, despite not having any expertise in energy or any real connections to Ukraine or expertise in that country. And that company was accused of being corrupt. Now, the Democrats charged that Trump's actions in trying to obtain an investigation and hold back military aid was politically motivated and created foreign interference in American elections. Trump and Republicans argued it was simply normal foreign policy, the president of Ukraine did not actually feel any pressure, and the aid was released despite no investigation against Hunter Biden, and that there were real issues in connection with corruption that Hunter Biden might have been involved with. Unconvinced by Trump, the Democrats forged ahead with impeachment. Article 1 of the articles found that Trump committed a high crime and misdemeanor by abusing his power. The second article found that Trump obstructed Congress. 
In particular, Article 1 states, in part, that, quote, using the powers of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 United States presidential election. He did so through a scheme or course of conduct that included soliciting the government of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations that would benefit his re-election, harm the election prospects of a political opponent, and influence the 2020 United States presidential election to his advantage. President Trump also sought to pressure the government of Ukraine to take these actions by conditioning official United States government acts of significant value to Ukraine on his public announcement of the investigations. In doing so, President Trump used the powers of the presidency in a manner that compromised the national security of the United States and undermined the integrity of the United States Democrat process. He thus ignored and injured the interests of the nation, unquote. Article 2 echoes the third article of the Nixon impeachment, quoting in part, quote, in his conduct of the office of president of the United States and in violation of his constitutional oath faithfully to execute the office of president of the United States and to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and in violation of his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, Donald J. Trump has directed the unprecedented, categorical, and indiscriminate defiance of subpoenas issued by the House of Representatives pursuant to its sole power of impeachment, unquote. These articles were approved, as I noted before, on nearly a party-line vote. A few days before the vote, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi made some comments about the necessity of moving forward. It's interesting for a number of reasons, and I'll quote some of it here for you. Quote, Let us begin where our founders began in 1776. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another, unquote, with those words, our founders courageously began our Declaration of Independence. For an oppressive monarch, from among other grievances, the king's refusal to follow rightfully passed laws. In the course of today's events, it becomes necessary for us to address, among other grievances, the president's failure to faithfully execute the law. When crafting the Constitution, the founders feared the return of monarchy in America, and having just fought a war of independence, they specifically feared the prospect of a king president corrupted by foreign influence. And then it continues, and it quotes James Madison, Gouverneur Morris, George Mason, refers to Benjamin Franklin, and continues, quote, Our democracy is what is at stake. The president leaves us no choice but to act because he is trying to corrupt, once again, the election for his own benefit. The president is engaged in an abuse of power, undermining our national security, and jeopardizing the integrity of our elections, unquote. So, we are now pretty much up to date. As this profound moment in American history continues, we will be well served to remember the text, purpose, and the history of impeachment. We'll see what happens with the Senate if a trial goes forward and how it does. And we'll be there to watch history happen in person, live, 365, 24-7. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you and God bless America. To learn more about our Declaration of Independence, Constitution, American History, and Civics, please subscribe to our podcast. Also visit PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. We are now nationwide, recently been recognized by the United States Senate in a unanimous resolution, and we really can use your help. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week 
on Facebook on our group page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If, again, if you're interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments about this podcast or Patriot Week in general, please send us a message on the social media platforms I've mentioned or connect with me directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. That's M-W-A-R-R-E-N at patriotweek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America.